Hello and welcome to the Naval Air Podcast. My name is Mike and I'm your host. For the first time, I have a guest, somebody who can talk about naval aviation from a different point of view, something a little bit more current, a little more up to date, rather than my old 20 year old plus memories and recollections. In addition, uh, our guest, he's, he's a student naval aviator. He's going to give us a rundown on the pipeline, the, the path you take to earn your pilot's wings in Uncle Sam's Navy. And his name is Josh. And Josh, I'd like to welcome you and thank you very much for agreeing to let me capture your thoughts and record them for posterity. Well, thank you for listening. <laughs> Anytime. So, um, Josh, why don't you tell tell us the the first requirement, I guess, to even be considered as for a pilot slot? Can even run down the 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 physical or physiological aspects of what you have to be or not have, and those kind of things. Well, there's a there's a number of different requirements, uh, both physical and academic. Obviously, you have to have uh, relatively decent vision. These days, it's uh, 2040 or better for applicants, uh, so it's, you don't have to have perfect vision like uh, you used to in the past. You have to have a, at least a bachelor's degree from a four-year accredited university, and obviously no history of any criminal activity or any criminal record. And that's a basic, okay. basic uh, list of stuff you need. Is there age, age limitation? The age limitation is currently, I believe, 27 years old. You have to get commissioned before you turn 27. And this is to enter a flight or pilot training program, right? Right. For pilot or uh, navigator, uh, it's 27. Okay. So we, we know that you're less than that. <laughs> right? A little bit. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, still doesn't uh, cast any shadow or anything, but... I'm probably old enough to be your dad. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, I guess I'll ask the the softball, easy softball question. What what was that made you decide that you wanted to to be a naval aviator? Uh, I would say uh, at the time it was because I didn't want to be an engineer. <laughs> Okay. I was I was in the midst of getting my engineering degree and and realized that you know ever since I was a young kid I wanted to fly, and uh, I was starting to branch off down the wrong path. So I decided to get back on the right path and try and apply for a pilot slot. And in the meantime, uh, you were earning your own private pilot's license. Uh, I was, but I wasn't able to complete that until uh, after I was already accepted into the Navy. Okay. Now, how long was that process? Was it was it uh, okay? Well, let me back up and re-ask the question differently. Uh, when you graduated from school, from <clears throat> college, had you already submitted an application to, I guess, I get visit a recruiter and sign on the dotted line, those kind of things? And what was the timing for that? Well, um, actually, I applied for a special program while I was still in college. Um, called the baccalaureate degree completion program and I first called the recruiter for that probably my first summer in school um, I was in summer school and I was really evaluating my engineering degree and the fact that I really didn't want to be a desk engineer for four years 
So I first made the call uh, my first summer. And uh, that program allows you up to 36 months before graduation to get a guaranteed pilot slot with uh, uh, the fact that you'll be going to OCS afterwards to earn your commission and then start the pipeline after that. Sweet. I wish they'd had that deal 20 plus years ago. <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty sweet deal. I mean, I got paid active duty E3 pay. I earned uh, time in service. So I, my retirement started from, you know, when I was in college. That is actually a very sweet deal. Holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to ROTC where you're just kind of faking it and none of that time counts. Not at all. All right. So so you're the, the you already knew heading towards graduation that, that OCS was on your horizon, which is Officer Candidate School. Explain the acronym just in case those few of you listening don't know what it is. Um, was your... OCS target date you you said was fairly quick after graduation. Uh, yes, I mean they they knew obviously uh, about a year and a couple months before I graduated that I you know I had the pilot slot I was graduating on May fifth whatever it was, so they gave me a, an OCS date start date of uh, June 9th, so I had about a month off. Okay, and um, you still finished the degree in engineering though, yes. Right. Okay. Right. You didn't switch it to something a little easier, liberal, liberal artish, nothing like that. <laughs> no, I, I mean, during the application process, you have to put down your degree completion program to show that you're going to graduate on time. So I couldn't really switch my major at that point. Okay. And then, all right, so off to OCS. Now, how long is OCS nowadays? OCS nowadays is uh, 12 weeks long. 12 weeks. So almost like regular basic training, I would think. Um where did you go? I went uh, down to Pensacola right. for 14 lovely weeks. <laughs> hey, you know, I went to Pensacola right after basic training. And to go from basic training to what they call a C school as opposed to an A school, right? It's a school for all types. It's not it's not your initial training for enlisted folks. And right. we loved it there. I there's two of us that came from my basic training and we were just like, this is awesome. I mean, we could, what, we don't have to wear uniforms. I mean, we can, we can use a vending machine without asking permission. It was just, you know, crazy. And then the food was so good. <laughs> That's what I remember. Yeah, you, you guys <laughs> definitely looked like you were having a blast across the street there while we were getting sprayed with the hose in the sand pit. <laughs> hey, you know, we had, we had our ups and downs now. Okay. Now when you talk about being sprayed in the hose, you're talking, that sounds like the AOCS then. Yes. Aviation Officer Candidate School? You know what? Uh, the the modern-day Officer Candidate School uh, retains a lot of traditions from the days of AOCS because in, in the uh, the Newport OCS that was just for the non-aviators back in the day, uh, they actually did not have drill instructors, and it was uh, mainly run by the chiefs, as I understand it. But uh, with the consolidation into Officer Candidate School as a whole, uh, there's still DIs and it's uh, it's pretty intense experience. All right, so you're wearing the poopy suit, the chromey, the, the silver helmets, right? Were they still silver? Yep, we okay. sure were. All right, you talk about being in the sand pit, looking at us. I remember watching because yes, the Naval Air Crew School is right across the street from the Chow Hall for the AOCS the, back in my day. Yep, and, and we <laughs> and we watched the what was what was your small unit called? Was it a class, right? 
call them class? Right. Cla- okay. Not not platoon or company or anything like that. Uh, we'd refer to it as platoon, but it was we call them classes. Okay. So your classes line up in a formation, wearing your green suit with your silver helmet with your name on it and masking tape, right? Probably the same ones that John McCain wore. Yeah. <laughs> and. And I okay now we couldn't hear what the DI was saying, but he would say something, and you'd put your hand on your head, and then he'd say something, and you put your hand down, or he'd say something else, and you'd fling the helmet off your head. Does this sound familiar so far? <laughs> yeah, the 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 poopy suit week is is the first week that we're at Officer Candidate School, and a lot of stuff we do is just silly. It's just you know the DI telling us to do something, and we're listening and doing it. And it's just to cause stress. That's all it's really about. Yes, but here's the part that I thought was funny was that. He would give the command and all the helmets would sail off into this little patch of grass that was right next to the walkway. And then you'd all zoom in to go have your five minutes of, to eat, whatever, right? And he'd be outside picking up the helmets looking for a particular name. And when he found the guy he liked, he hid his helmet in the bush. I was just yep. wondering if, if that had happened to you. <laughs> Yeah, actually, I, I mean, they, they do all sorts of stuff. I remember we all would get into formation and put our chrome domes down, those are our helmets, and they were all nice and square in formation. We'd run into Chow, and uh, we'd come out, and, you know, obviously while we were inside, the DIs would throw the helmets all over the place. So, you know, just the same way we were all looking for our own helmets and wearing other people's, and it was just mayhem. And they're yelling and screaming the whole time. <laughs> Oh yeah. All right. So you went to AOCS, okay? I, I, you know, for some reason, I when you said AOCS, I, I thought of the, the knife and fork school or the salute school or the toned down. But well, well, me. OCS is. Well, I went to a, uh, OCS. AOCS got discontinued in 1994. But that, that's what I was saying uh, about AOCS before is that a lot of the traditions are the same brought part. over from AOCS, but it's now OCS where all designators go. Okay. All right. So I'll get it eventually. All right. So 14 weeks. Um, now, in addition to regular basic training kind of hazing, uh, making you run everywhere, yelling and screaming, marching in formation, uh, PT, there's also academics, yes? Yes. Okay, so you're learning how jet engines work and all those kind of things. All right. 14 weeks. And this was at Pensacola. Now, this is no longer Pensacola. This school has moved to Rhode Island, you just said? Right. So you were, were you one of the last to go through? At- I was the second to last class to graduate from Pensacola. I'll see. You carry the mantle. You carry some tradition, some piece of naval history that's dead and gone. Too bad. Indeed. All right. So now, after OCS, you when you at, upon completion of OCS, you you earn your commission, correct? Yes. Commission an ensign in the United States Navy. Uh, is this Naval Reserve, USNR, or are you full-on regular unrestricted line? Uh, full-on unrestricted line. You know, back in, you know, maybe 10 years ago, I don't know when it got discontinued, but you were commissioned to the Naval Reserve until you earned your wings. You were technically active duty reserve, but today it's just straight-up active duty. Probably less administrative hassle for the... For the uh... <laughs> Admin types. Admin, so. Okay, so upon completion of OCS, the next stop for you is called. Well, actually, it could branch, right? No. Yeah, it could branch. It could be. Tell me the two schools or the two bits of training you could either end up going to. Well, there's a, there's actually a couple checks in the box that they could throw you into depending on how long the wait is for API. API is really. 
um, kind of the determining factor on what you're going to do. Uh, before you start API, if you have no flight experience, you have to go to IFS, which is Introductory Flight Screening, where you do 25 hours of civilian flight training in a Cessna, and you basically get up to like a solo cross-country, and that's as far as you go with that, and then you start API after that. I had already got my private pilot's license, so I was not required to do IFS, and I went straight into API about a week and a half after OCS. And API is an acronym for? Aviation pre-flight indoctrination. Okay. Now, for IFS, is it a civilian airfield somewhere nearby in Pensacola, or they yes, send they, you uh, hither and yon? If you come from the academy, you can do it up in Annapolis. If you're uh, coming from the Marine Corps, you can do it in Quantico. If uh, if you're just an OCS guy or a ROTC guy, uh, you do it locally in the Pensacola area. There's a couple schools. There's like Mobile, Alabama. There's Destin nearby. Uh, or Pensacola, or I think even Milton can come up here and do it. Okay. All right, so uh, how long do they have to complete this 25 hours of flight time? Is it three weeks, four weeks? I mean, they fly every day, two hours, what? Do um, you know? That's a good question. Uh, since okay. I never did it, I'm not sure. I, I believe it's somewhere on the order of like maybe 50 days or something like that to complete the syllabus. That actually sounds pretty, like plenty of time. There's gotta be uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really, I, I'm sure it happens, but I don't know a whole lot of people who can't get done in that kind of time. I wonder if there's some self-paced aspect to it. I'll have to find uh, out. A lot, a lot of people can volunteer to kind of do two flights a day. Like they'll stay in, you know, like the the FBO, the the flight school, and they'll stay there all day just to get a chance to fly twice that day. Okay. I have to find out. I have to flesh that detail out. All right, so. You had a week and a half between OCS and API. And API is how long? API is uh, six weeks long. Okay, now this sounds... Well, why don't you tell me what you did at API, because I have a feeling this is where your first bit of training and my first bit of training are probably uh, nearly identical. Okay. Um, API is, is basically broken down into uh, like two phases. The first phase is... Uh, mainly academic. Uh, you do swimming all along, but the first phase is mainly uh, classroom instruction. And then the last two weeks is a lot of survival type stuff. Um, so you might meet up in, in the morning at the pool and you know there are a couple uh, air crew, petty officers, uh, rescue swimmers who teach you basic survival swimming and, and you do various swimming evolutions just to test your, your strokes and your ability to swim certain distances. Uh, and then after that, you'll probably go to the classroom for a couple hours, break for lunch, come back, or maybe just push on and then uh, break for the day. And you do various courses on, you know, engines or weather or aerodynamics, uh, stuff that's not necessarily applicable to you in the cockpit, but it lays a good foundation. So you may not necessarily remember these subjects in detail years later, but it sets up a good foundation and it kind of teaches you to pace yourself and how to study to prepare you for flight school. Really? Okay. The, the whole pacing, that's interesting. Now, again, you're, you're moving through this as a class or are you talking about yeah, you, just showing you up? Yeah, you through I mean, this as a class. Okay. Are you staying in a, in a uh, Navy quarters or are you out in the town or is it mixed bag or... Uh, most people stay out in the town. I mean, from time to time, the the Naval Aviation Schools Command might put out an instruction that, hey, we need to fill the BOQ. But for the most part, and as far as I've ever seen, you 
pretty much find your own housing. Although you can't stay in the BOQ if you want. Well, you know, you stay in the queue, you don't get your money. <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So, now they did things, you talk about survival. So, I, I'm assuming the D-West, the deep water environment survival, they, they, um, the, what would we call it, where you, now they didn't have the parasailing yet, but the whole parachute disentanglement, they drop in the water, dragging the water thing, you do all that. Yep. Yeah, that's all part of APIS. Do the helo dunker. Okay. Uh, we do a little bit of uh, like CPR and uh, first aid stuff and that kind of thing. And then you have to swim so far in your flight suit, and you have to tread water right. so far and full equipment. That's, okay. All right. That's okay. the last evolution we do. Is we have to swim a mile. I think it's in under eighty minutes or something like that. It's not too hard. No. Doing you can do backstroke the whole way. So API is very. <laughs> Seriously, you can just kind of float along. Right? Yeah, it's it's a pretty significant amount of time. You know what I what I remember worst about that swim is the chafing of the stupid flight suit. Yep, that was that yeah. was the worst part. <laughs> you know? um, all right, so API and Air Crew School are very similar, I guess, in 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 mission, which is nothing you're actually going to use in a cockpit, but things that they've discovered are important for you to know in case something bad happens. Did you right. guys have boxing lessons? We did not. To this day, I have never been trained in any sort of combat by the military. So, <laughs> no, I, you know, it wasn't combat training. It was, it was five boxing lessons were part of the air crew syllabus, and it was just one extra level of stress to add to to your, I, don't, I guess, to your training. Because you know, who wants to actually go get hit? You know. <laughs> yeah, it's what I, and they tell us, okay, you know, the, the the first three lessons were, you know, kind of boxing training, you know, speed bag and the throw the medicine ball around. And these are the kind of things you do in a boxing gym. And then the last two were get in the ring and fight. <laughs> it's like, nice. I don't want to fight. I don't want to get knocked in the head. But, you know, sure enough, one just one more thing to discover about your inner your inner constitution, I suppose. <laughs> Now, no land survival in API. No, go out into the to the wilds of Eglin Air Force Base and live off of plants and animals. None of that. No, uh, we we got a land survival course where they you know they taught us uh, basic things to keep from getting cold and how to build shelters and lay traps for animals and build a fire. But we never really got any field experience. Sure, I, I guess they they're saving that one for Sear. Okay. All right. So, six weeks of API. And then after API goes, you go to primary flight training, yes? That's correct. And how many places in the United States does the Navy offer primary flight training? Uh, you can stay in uh, the Pensacola area and go up north to Milton. You can go to Corpus Christi, Texas, which is where I went. Uh, or you can go to uh, Vance Air Force Base in Oklahoma. Vance Air Force Base. Now, this is... This is a result of something I read where some some brass in the Pentagon figure that basic primary flight training is the same no matter what service you belong to. Is that the idea? Uh, yeah, there, there's they, they do try and involve a lot of joint training. I mean, I know a lot of the uh, the Air Force guys will come and they'll do primary here at Whiting as well. So there, there is some sort of exchange with that. Okay. All right, so you got sent to Corpus Christi, Texas. Um, yep. Now... How much time did you say was between API and primary? 
API and primary. Uh, I'm pretty sure uh, I checked out of school's command on a Friday uh, and pretty much got the weekend and had to report into Training Wing 4 on Monday. So got about three days of travel to get down there. And you did that okay, I take it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Dro it wasn't too bad. Drove yourself? Yep, I uh, rented a U-Haul and drove out. Okay. All right. U-Haul? Wait a second. <laughs> How much crap could you possibly have had from going through API in six weeks? Or whatever uh, well, portion of a, OCS lets you have. As a silly little <laughs> ensign, uh, I decided to go out and buy a lot of furniture and TV and all that stuff once I graduated OCS. So okay. I had a significant amount of stuff. Not, not a lot, but enough to get a U-Haul. All right. So you hauled yourself down to Corpus. <laughs> nice. <Yep. laughs> All right. Now, primary flight training is um, how long, typically? Uh, it, this is where it starts to vary. But typically, people will finish in around six or seven months. All right. All right. Let me rephrase. Is there a maximum amount of time you, you get? Or No, it's all based on how many flights you fail or something like that. Right. I, I've never heard of any sort of time frame that you have to finish by okay. but uh but yeah i mean it, it typically it's six to seven months but i know people who took maybe a year or longer so it can vary well if flights get canceled for weather and things like that i would, I would suspect it would add right add stuff on there okay um let's see i don't know how to form the next question primary is made up of a syllabus of flights i'm assuming actual flights in an aircraft what aircraft yes, is it's, this? Uh, it's broken down into a couple different phases, really. Uh, the first phase, you'll start out as ground school, and that's where you basically learn systems. You learn weather, really more applicable weather to what you're going to be using when you're going out flying. Um, and then after you finish all the ground training, you're going to go into what they call CPTs, which is Cockpit Procedural Trainers. And this is the first time you're ever going to actually get into a mock-up cockpit it, the, the, it's basically the uh, the sims except the sims don't move for cpts okay you're just running through checklists i think i've seen these have, in the in flight you schools have, uh, at the lockheed instructors that will basically sit there and and it, it's just like a, a flight you're just running through the checklists and they'll sort of grade you based on your performance of that although the grades in that phase uh as far as i know don't count although i think they're changing that and then after CPTs, you're going to wait and do your first pre-flight with your on-wing, and your on-wing is going to be your instructor, your dedicated instructor for the first 12 flights. And once you do a pre-flight with him, he'll tell you what he expects of you, and then you move on to uh, your first contact flights, which are basic, basic flying skills, day visual flying, no instruments. And you do uh, four of those flights, then you move into a basic instrument phase where you learn how to fly without being able to see outside a cockpit. And you go back to the sims for those. And then you come back and you do three BI flights in the aircraft. And then you do more contact flights, uh, I believe eight more. And you do your first check ride. And after that check ride, you do your first solo. All right. BI and contact. Why do they call them contact flights? Um, contact flights... Uh, I don't really know. I mean, contact is is like what the civilians, I guess, would call VFR flying. It's, uh, I guess it's contact because in the civilian world, VFR flying en encompasses a lot more than just basic flying. 
they, they, they have like navigation flights and cross countries and, and that, you don't do any of that during the contact phase. Contact basically just means getting the aircraft, running through the checklist, taxiing, taking off, going and doing basic maneuvers like stalls and spins and all that stuff, coming course rules home and landing. So you're not doing any sort of navigation, you're not flying to different airports, you're just doing basic maneuvers and coming back and landing. So that, that's contact. Okay. Uh, BI is basically a safety precaution that um, they want you to be able to fly in, in case you were to fly into the clouds by accident or something like that. They want you to be able to have the basic uh, instrument capabilities okay. to get yourself out of that situation because you're about to go solo. So they want you to do that um, in preparation for your upcoming solo. Okay. And once you solo, I take it there's some sort of milestone event marked when you solo? Yeah. Once you solo, that's kind of the, the end of like the first big block of training. And, and there's a little ceremony where they give you a certificate for, you know, your first military solo. And they, they do what's called a tie cutting where, you, you know, you come and you bring a, a little tie and you wear the tie around your neck and your instructor comes and cuts the tie. Okay. And uh, he, he keeps the, the, the little piece of tie for himself and you have your cut tie and he, he tells a story about something funny or something stupid that you did while he was flying with you. And, that, and that's your online. Okay. All right. So once you solo, then there's a, another chunk of training, and that's geared towards right. just more proficiency in the things you've already done, or they start piling on more? After after you finish the contact phase, you move into uh, PAs, or precision aerobatics, and that's where you get to do all the, the fun aerobatic flying. Okay. And as far as I can recall, I think that was uh, six flights. You do one flight. And then the next flight is a check ride, and then a solo, a check ride, solo, check ride, solo. So it's it comes real quick. I mean, you do the maneuvers, and then the next flight you're already getting tested on them. But okay. it's fun because the following flight you get to go fly aerobatics by yourself, which I don't know any any civilian flight school that'll let you do that so quickly. Now, when you solo, do the instructors fly? You talk about what they call their on wing, so that. That, that connotates to me that they're flying next to you in another aircraft. Is this, is this how it works, or they sit on the ground uh, and watch you upstairs? No. Uh, I, I don't know where they got the term for on-wing, but uh, I guess because he's, I, I guess, theoretically speaking, uh, or metaphorically, I should say, he's, he's kind of like on your wing, kind of okay. guiding you. But uh, no, when, when you fly solo, he's on the ground and you're off by yourself. I mean, oftentimes, he'll actually be on another flight flying with somebody else, so he's not even there to babysit you, really. You're on your own. Okay. And so solo time is just for you to work on something you feel you're deficient on? Or do they give you a list of things, do this on your next solo? I mean, because, you know, human nature tells me that it's, there's no one there to ride them. Then some people are just going to kind of goof off when they fly. Uh, well, th there is a, you know, they'll tell you to, hey, this you should go fly this or work on that. But really there's there's no real guidance i mean the solo you could go and fly in circles if you want to and come back i mean it's it's really just a confidence builder to uh to allow you to fly by yourself and really build that confidence that hey i know what i'm doing i can do this so okay you know if there's bad weather or something like that where you can't do aerobatics they might let you just go and then you know bounce in the pattern do a couple landings and come back um you know just to get it done so there, there's not a real requirement for solo flights but it's, it's mainly just a confidence builder Okay. All right. So after precision aerobatics comes what? Uh, after aerobatics, that's where things can change. Um, you can go to either uh, formation, 
flying. That's one of the options, or you go to uh, Radio Instruments, RIs, and that's where you learn how to really fly in the, the clouds, like to be an instrument pilot. But you'll, uh, I happen I happen to go to RIs first and then end it on forms. But you'll do both, okay? So just a right. just a way to kind of break it down the the class sizes or the I guess ease the syllabus is the term is what for want of a better term they can start getting stuff done concurrently this group does this and this group does that and they swap right I mean the the ops department will basically look at all the X's they they have done and and how many people are in one phase versus how many people are in the other and they'll basically just determine who's going where based on the needs of uh, of the X's they need to get done Okay, so you went on to radio instruments, which is learning to fly on a uh, compass settings and using VORs and things like that. Right, that, it's okay. it's basic uh, basic IFR flying. I mean, we don't get our instrument rating in primary. It's just a basic introduction to IFR flying. So we do approaches and we do on route navigation and that kind of thing. Okay, and then formation flying sounds kind of like self-explanatory. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> how many? How many aircraft? Four, three, two. No, in in primary, you're you're pretty much limited to two aircraft. You you have a partner. You have a form partner that you do all your form flights with. Okay, and who? And the instructors where grading this again on the ground or in the back seat or what? They they start out in the back. Well, not start out. They're they're pretty much in the back seat except for one flight that you do. You have one solo. Um, but it just happened that on the day that I was supposed to do my solo, the weather was bad, and I was so close to finishing primary that we just decided to do what's called a shotgun solo, where the instructor sits in the back, but he doesn't say a word. So I, my, my solo was with an instructor, but he didn't talk. Okay. So. All right. So now, somewhere during primary, the Navy asked you what you want to fly, correct? Where you want to um, go from here? The, the, the big Navy, they don't really ask you until the end when you fill out your selection. But, you know, when you're flying with instructors all throughout primary, one of the, you know, one of the questions they're going to talk just for conversation is, hey, you know, what do you, what do you think about flying? So it, the, the instructors kind of get a sense of who wants what because you'll fly with a whole bunch of different people and pretty much everyone will ask you what you want. Okay, so at this, at this time, the, the choices are – why do we run down the choices really quick because your choices were way different than mine. Right. <laughs> or are way different than mine. We're, that's a better way to say it. So uh, the, cho the choices uh, as of now are tail hook for um, F-18s and prowlers, which actually I believe they're not selecting any prowler spots at the moment, just with the transition of the, the EA-18. Okay. Um, so basically F-18 uh, or E-2C-2, that's all under one selection of tail hook. Okay, meaning land on, land on a boat. Right. With an arresting uh, okay. There's P3. Um, and maritime Patrol. As its own choice. Yep. Uh, for Maritime Patrol. And then you got uh, Rotary Wing, so all of us Hilo guys. And then uh, you've got E6, which trains with the Air Force. All the... Out the in Oklahoma. Takamo. Right. Right. Take charge of... Okay. Um, okay, so you, you're going through and... and all right, so selection is when you're done done with primary, you tell them what you want. That's when you fill out the, the – you give them your request at the end? Uh, it varies uh, between squadrons or, or – I don't know if it's squadrons or location, but I know I've talked to guys who went through primary in Milton 
and they said that uh, they filled out their selection sheet like when they first checked in. Um, obviously, they were allowed to change it if they changed their minds along the way, but they filled out that sheet when they first checked in and just you know reviewed it again when they finished the syllabus. But for us, we didn't fill out a selection sheet until we were syllabus complete. Okay. And then how, how much time between filling out uh, your request at syllabus complete to being notified where your next stop is? Because that's basically what's next, right? You finished right. primary, you got to know where you're going next. Yep. So I, I finished uh, primary on a Wednesday, waited until the next Tuesday, and selections are always done Tuesday. Okay. Uh, met with uh, one of the lieutenants who was a selections officer and filled out our you know dream sheets, as they call them. Uh, that, at that point, there's an official brief that they say, hey, if you want to learn about each of the pipelines, we'll brief you. But, I mean, at that point, everybody already knows Should what know. they yeah, want. Yeah, yeah. That's... So okay. we filled that, that out on a Tuesday. And then on uh, on the Thursday, we got a brief from the CO. Uh, he kind of just basically came in and sat down real quick, just went, hey, what do you want? Well, here, here's what you get. So <laughs> two days. Yeah. Uh, same for me. We had... I mean, we didn't we didn't pick our platform. We had well, you make a first choice and a second choice, and if you had twenty twenty vision and the depth perception, one of your choices had to be Hilo because they want to keep up the available pool of search and rescue swimmers. And then you picked your platform and your coast at the same time. So if you knew you wanted to go to Norfolk, Virginia, you picked two platforms that their rag was in norfolk virginia which at that time was uh, hsl what, uh, east and uh who else was it hs yeah and then p uh, s3s were in jacksonville i forget p3s were in brunswick so you know if you if you kind of knew where you wanted to kind of end up you can play it like that or if you wanted to guarantee your aircraft and you didn't care which coast you ended up on you said i want s3s East and S3 West were my first, but again, I had to have helicopter, so I picked it so I'd end up at North Island at the very least, and what do you know? I got my second choice. <laughs> so, all right. So, you know, two, okay, so a week, you find out, and then how much time they give you to get from Corpus to, well, okay, well, well, hang on a second. For the listener, Josh already knows what he's got. <laughs> We want to talk about what happens after, so we don't want we don't want to kind of give. Although he's already given a clue, we just want to kind of be generic here. So the next step is what they call advanced. Yes. Yes. All right. So once you've selected and they tell you what you got, you go to the place where your advanced training for your particular community is training at. Right. That's correct. So. How many choices there after the, after that? Well, let's talk about, or is it too many to talk about? Uh, I mean, the the choices based on the pipeline that you're going to are, are pretty much what you can talk about. The location is not really going to make much of a difference. All right. Uh, it's going to be the same for either one, but. Okay, so because see, because after primary, they still have fleet replacement squadron, where you actually learn your target aircraft. Right. So right. advanced is just getting gearing you up so you know what you're doing at the rack. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. You're still flying a training aircraft. I mean, jets are flying jet trainers, helicopters are flying helicopter trainers, but you're you're not flying your aircraft yet. That's that's what the rack right. is for. All right. So 
How many primary or advanced spots are there? Did I already ask that question? Did, I, did you already tell me there's no way to tell? No. <laughs> Was I not paying uh, attention? It, it, it there's uh for for jets there's uh, Kingsville, uh, uh, Texas and Meridian Mississippi Meridian, okay. for, for helicopters. There's only Milton. Uh, P3s what? is in Corpus Christi, Texas, and E6 is in uh, Vance, Oklahoma. In Oklahoma. Okay. Now when you say Milton, that's still part of Naval Air Station Pensacola, is it not? Uh, no, that's uh, NAS Whiting Field. Whiting. All right. So Whiting is to the north. Right, it's uh, right. it's about forty five minutes an hour away from Pensacola. I never visited Whiting base. when I was all right. So Milton is the town in Florida that Whiting is in, yes? Right. All right. Gotcha. Okay, so now at this point the now you talked about one of the advanced selections being tail hook, right? So if if tail hook is no matter if you're flying if you're gonna end up flying E twos or F-18s, you're still going through the tail hook syllabus in a jet trainer. Is that true? That's correct. Okay. And, okay, because at the end of their syllabus, they're going to be landing on a boat, I'm assuming. Right. Right? Okay. <laughs> Boy, I'm pretty sharp sometimes, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, let me think for a second. All right, well, since you haven't gotten, you just barely got, you haven't quite started your advanced training yet, um, we're going to kind of keep that part a secret for now. Got to give, you know, got to give people a reason to tune back in later, right? Fair um, enough. Let's go back to, uh, trying to think, something you had said. Oh goodness, I'm having a senior moment. Um, shoot. All right. Uh, well, I'm gonna kind of put you on the spot for. Is there any particular anecdote that you find humorous about your training so far? Anything that's caught you off guard or where you've kind of realized that you've come close to, you know, screwing the pooch or, you know, any, any scary moment flying, any, or did you witness any other classmate doing something brainless that was kind of hilarious? Oh, my, my roommate's got a, a great story, actually. Um... <laughs> He is uh, one of the very few people that I know that uh, has ever downed, or uh, another way of saying failed, uh, a solo flight <laughs> when there's nobody in the back to grade you. How does that happen? Um, well, uh, we were out in Las Cruces, New Mexico, which is where Corpus Christi sends uh, a debt, a detachment, out to Las Cruces two times a year, I believe it is now, um, for about three or four months or whatever it is. And we do uh, basically all of our contacts, all of our uh, precision aerobatic, and all of our form flights out there as much as we can do. We usually fly a lot more about twice a day as opposed to a couple times a week. 
So we were on debt out in Las Cruces, and uh, we were around, you know, the end of contacts into our solos. And uh, my roommate, who uh, I'll keep anonymous, <laughs> he was uh, out flying, and he was on his way back in. And since there's no air traffic control out there, we have a system of course rules on how you're supposed to fly around and how to get back so as not to create a hazard for outgoing and incoming aircraft. And use Unicom, so, right? Unicom? Talk, right. Talk, uh, we, had, we had common frequencies, and we had a particular way to fly around the mountain clockwise versus counterclockwise, depending on the runway, whatever. Okay. So there's an initial point that you would fly to first before turning into the runway to enter the pattern for the break and you know do the pattern from there. So this initial point is where all the flights are coming. The flights from the north are all the contact flights and aerobatic flights, and the flights from the south are all formation. So we had different working areas. And uh, he was flying into the initial point and made all of his appropriate radio calls to the runway duty officer, to the pattern, everything. Um, he spotted another aircraft coming in from the south, a formation flight, so two, two aircraft. And uh, uh, he mistakenly thought he was over the initial point and made his appropriate radio call and turned inbound. Uh, but in fact, he was north of the initial point, and the aircraft that he spotted before was actually over the initial point. They made their call and turned inbound. And basically, there were two flights flying parallel inbound for the runway. So <laughs> uh, the instructor who was in the, one of the aircraft for the formation flight basically said, hey, buddy, uh, why don't you go talk to the ODO, the operations duty officer, when you land? <laughs> so oh, uh, he basically went and talked to the ODO and sure enough downed his solo uh, for basically cutting off another aircraft and creating a, a hazard. So we, we kind of gave him, gave him a lot of crap for it did, and kind of made fun of him for downing a solo flight by an instructor from the other squadron. <laughs> Did he earn a nickname or a call sign for that? Uh, not not really. Although uh, later on, uh, I heard through Grapevine that uh, the ODO on a later date was giving a, a, a brief to another solo who was about to go up because you have to talk to the ODO right before you go out for your solo. Uh, and uh, let's just say uh, his last name was Mike. <laughs> Just, just put a name out there. Okay. He, he said, he said to the student, he said, uh, "Don't, don't mic your solo." <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, his name lived on in infamy for a little while after that one. Very funny. So, <laughs> not enough, not enough. Would you think, not enough? Uh, well, how, how far, how far off was he? It sounds like he was north of where he needed to turn in. Right. Uh, well. How, in that particular area, there was the the initial point was a bridge over the ground. It was basically where the ten freeway crosses a river, and there's a smaller ridge to the north of it. So he had just mistaken that okay. bridge as being the ten. Gotcha. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> you know that, that kind of thing happens. I mean, people make mistakes, but you know, sure. you, you don't want to be doing that in front of another instructor. That's kind of bad timing, I guess. And 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 all this is done in the uh, the T thirty four aircraft, right? That's correct. Still, Unless you're at Vance Air Force Base training with the Air Force, and they use the the T6 uh, two, the Texan two. They're both turboprops, though, correct? T34 right. is a turboprop, All right? 
So um, now as part of primary training, do they take you on any fun flights, cross countries to wherever to have a snack or do something naughty and come back or anything like that? Right. That's uh, it's basically one of the last flights you do in the radio instrument phase is a cross country. Um, and you'll actually fly to some location. It, it depends on on the situation as to where you determine where you're going, but usually it's a, a combination of where the student wants to go, where the instructor wants to go, and other factors, whatever. But you pick a location, and you'll usually accomplish two or three X's or events on the way out, and then two or three on the way back. So you'll, you'll do an out and in and accomplish about six flights. Okay. And how long are you on the road? Just a day, or you get to spend? No, you'll you'll go out typically on a Friday and come back on a Sunday, or if you know if it's a three day weekend, you'll come back on a Monday. Okay, so where did you go? I went to Dallas, Texas. So not too far, but uh, but it was still pretty fun. Okay, no no sea stories from your trip to Dallas. Uh. No, not not particularly. I mean, it was a little crazy flying into uh, the Dallas terminal area. I mean, you're you're flying into Class Bravo and really cranky ATC guys who are pissed off that you're <laughs> intruding on them when they got 737s. They got to land. So you didn't. The, you approach, didn't. <laughs> the approach was pretty interesting because we were flying at about a uh, 180 knots all the way until short final when we had to land, and that's yeah, that's definitely not standard. You didn't fly in a DFW, did you? No, no, there's no way they can take us. There's no way they take us. Yeah, there's Naval Air Station nearby or Reserve Base nearby, right? Uh, JRB Fort Worth or something like that. Joint Reserve Base. I, okay. I don't know if they're still around, but uh, so then you flew yeah, to, they used to be there. You flew to a little civilian airport then, or what? No, we flew to Dallas Love. Oh, Southwest Field. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, there was definitely a, a lot of drinking that weekend, and. Uh, <laughs> It was, it was pretty cool, though, to, to fly and actually land somewhere. And it, it makes you feel more like a pilot when you're actually going somewhere with sort of a purpose. And it was just you and the IP uh, or a couple no, of No, I, I went out with uh, – we went out with another plane. So I was with another student, and my instructor had the other instructor. Uh, my instructor was from Dallas. That's pretty much why we went to Dallas. Okay. But, uh, you went and saw some family and friends and what have you? Yep. That's usually uh, – that's usually the purpose across countries. Someone somewhere has a vested interest in the final destination. Oh, of course. Some, someone <laughs> in one of the airplanes. I've had one, one failed cross country. This was in, this is in the fleet squadron. Both of them, one failed cross country and one successful cross country. <laughs> and um, the, the failed one was a two, two ship, two aircraft. We're going to, well, Monterey. We're going to fly to Fort Ord. And then the other one was a trip to, supposed to be to Reno, but we had to stop. We had to stop at a little Air Force base that no longer exists and drive the rest of the way because of the craziest weather in in the uh, in the Sierra Nevadas had come rolling through and in like twenty years, icing and snow and all kinds of crazy stuff. And H twos don't have de-icing capability. Let me tell you, so we weren't flying <laughs> into that. Yeah, I mean, I, it's definitely a learning experience. I mean, you, you learn that a lot of times what you plan on the ground is not how you're going to fly it in the air. I mean, we had a flight plan. 
we had all these approaches and all these routes determined, and then we're getting in the air, and there's a thunderstorm passing right in front of us, so we got to turn around it. So it was definitely a learning experience that yeah. way. Oh, yeah, not to mention when aircraft get cranky, you know, and break or something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it took uh, two aircraft uh, before we could head out on our uh, cross country, and the aircraft we took still had a broken oil gauge in my cockpit, so... But still functional one in the other cockpit. That, the, oh, the yeah. Yeah, I mean, he said his was working fine, so we just decided to push and not come back because we were already airborne at that point. Now, all right. Mm. That that just rang a bell of what I was going to ask before. Um, maintenance. Who who performs the maintenance on, on these aircraft? Is it regular Navy enlisted folks that would work no. on... No, no, it's uh, it's it's outsourced uh, to contract maintenance through Sikorsky. All right, so civilians. Right. Okay. I'm not sure why they do that. I mean, I'm sure it's probably cheaper somehow. I'm not sure why, but that's that's who it is. Now they do all aircraft. So they do daily inspections, turnaround inspections, re- oh, they do everything. Flightline repair, all that. And, they, they, I mean, they work with, uh, at least in Corpus Christi, they worked on the T-44s, the C-12s, and, uh, I guess, HM-15 on the 53s. So they, they did everything. HM-15, the, the uh, uh, 53 squadron, HM-53s? Right. I mean, I'm sure they had their own, uh, you know, their own uh, Navy mechanics, but I, I think they were involved somehow with them. Maybe not. I don't know. I, I know for a fact they were with all the training squadrons, though. Very interesting. So when you flew on your cross country, who did the maintenance the other end? Uh, there pretty much uh, was no maintenance at the other end. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so just a regular standard pre-flight inspection and you fly on back. Yeah, I'm not sure uh, the regulations on how they work that, but that's pretty much standard procedures. There's there's no turnaround or daily inspections when you're on cross country, and and oftentimes you'll you'll do stuff on out and ins or cross countries to prevent you know a possible problem. Like uh, you'll do no flap landings just in case if you put the flaps down they won't come, come up back. and you're screwed. <laughs> so well, you're stuck, right? They'll do stuff like that, yeah. And if and if and if heaven forbid something like that happens, then does the contract maintenance dispatch a couple of guys wherever you are to fix the thing? Yeah, they'll, they'll send out a T-44 or C-12 with uh, some maintenance guys, and they'll usually just give you a thumbs up and fly back unless <laughs> it's a serious problem. <laughs> nice. So um, so then you've gone out to, to fly in a particular aircraft, and it's no good when you get there. Like, you, like during your pre-flight inspection, you find something wrong with it. Yes. Right. Uh, this is a question. So this has happened to you. You've you've come come across some airplane saying that I'm not flying this because this particular thing is bad. Um, I'm trying to think. I don't know if I ever spotted anything necessarily on a pre-flight that was a, a, an issue that uh, downed the plane. Um, Usually manifested in flight then. Right. I mean, okay. you know, like for instance, on on our cross country when we start up in the first plane. Uh, we were taxing out to make our first call to ground, and uh, my instructor kind of pipes up, "Hey, is your is your AC working?" "Yes, sir. Uh, it's fine. You know, back here." And he's like, "Oh, well, mine's not doing anything." <laughs> 
so we had to wait and see if maintenance could do anything, and then we basically just had to switch out aircraft because his air conditioners wasn't working. And, and then uh, okay. the, the next plane, the next plane we took, uh, I'm I'm still in the back seat because we had to do a, a no gyro PAR, so he I had to be in the back seat for him to fail that stuff on me. So I'm flying this PAR, and uh, I do you know one of my standard instrument checks. And I'm like, I'm like, hey sir, uh, you getting oil? temperature back there because mine screwed up you want to check the circuit breakers or something like that and he's like really <laughs> i mean i thought he was screwing with me to try and see if i was paying attention like a, a training thing and he's like really he's like mine's fine so okay. we had a, a failed oil temp gauge but we just decided to push on with that and like mine's working so we just went with it yeah you'll find uh well as time goes on and get comfortable with your aircraft you'll you'll see how the years of ah yeah that's fine <laughs> I, you know, I, I flown with a fuel totalizer that w wouldn't work. I mean, it would, it would wind up to full and then wind back down empty, then wind back up to full the whole time, and every every five minutes or so, whoever whichever pilot didn't have his hands on the stick and collected would push the thirty minute fuel light to see if it was still light. And when that he goes, yeah. when that comes on, we're heading, and you know, this is on. This is on deployment, so we're, you know, we're blue water, flying off our little destroyer. It says if I push that thing and it don't light, we're heading back. And when that thing lights up, <laughs> we're heading back. So okay, it took. We flew, I think, um, three or four flights. You know, that's two or two days, two days, because we'd do two flights a day before a, a new one showed up, because we didn't have one in stock. Hmm. Not a not. Eh. Anyways, that's. Something as an aircraft commander, you'll ultimately decide on whether or not it's worthwhile to keep flying or not, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, so, um, all right, well, we've been, we've been chatting here for almost a good hour. Um, I think we can, you know, kind of wrap it up, and uh, after you've had some time in advance, you can, you I'm hoping you'll come back and uh, give us a rundown of what what the fun and interesting things they do to you in advanced. Absolutely. And um, also, well, and maybe I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what kind of feedback we get. Maybe we'll have to hit some more detail on on some of the things they make you do, the silly stuff. Because you know, you know, learning to fly in the military is not just all business. There's silly military things you have to do that go with it, right? Uh, yes and no. In the training command, uh, you're pretty much a pilot. That's why you get a lot of uh, lieutenants and stuff will say, man, I'm jealous of you because you guys don't have to do anything but fly. I mean, we do, we stand duty a couple times, but we're mainly just pilots. I mean, we don't really have any other collateral duties like a fleet pilot would have. You're an, you're an ensign. Enjoy the lack of responsibility is basically, I think, the... Exactly. All right. Okay, so... I before before we could you know break it down is there any other i don't know, tidbit you care to share or you think you're good or um, see you next time or yeah i mean I, I i can't think of any one particular thing but uh perhaps next time i'll come up with some good stories that's okay you know it, you don't have to come yeah <laughs> it'll come to you <laughs> That's all. It's all a matter of. I mean, 
in, in any in any schooling environment, there's always a class clown, and there's always you know some guy who's dragging everybody down with them. So, you know, you'll uh, those are typically the people you only have to talk about at this point of your of your training. So, wouldn't want to call anybody out like that. So, all right. So, um, again, Josh, thank you for joining joining us today. Thank you for taking the time. I know I've kept you up kind of late, and um, you know, giving us the rundown of what's going on nowadays and in, in, in the life of a student naval aviator. And uh, we hope to get uh, you know talk to you again soon. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Just want to remind you after we just finished talking with Josh here that. To please send feedback, send me an email, talk to me, uh, mike at navalair.net is the email address. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, if it's good and you like it, tell me. If it's if there's things you want to hear changed or improved, send me that too. Uh, you can leave feedback at iTunes as well. Uh, just go to the iTunes Music Store, and if you go into my podcast, the section for this podcast, there's a place there to leave feedback. We have, at this point, probably two more shows with Josh coming up, uh, where he's moves through, continues to move through primary and into advanced training to become a pilot in the United States Navy. So I want to thank you all for listening. Stay safe and God bless. Mm-hmm.